Um, the uh, kiddos are staying in here with us today. And uh, kids, I want to talk to you just for a second if you're in here, normally not in here. Um, we give you a little packet to, uh, to draw on or to fidget with, and, um, and that's good and okay, and we encourage you to use that. I know most people are not auditory learners. You don't learn from people speaking, but especially this generation who grew up with devices in their hands, um, sometimes you have to have other ways of learning. But as I remember, just as I was thinking, sitting there, and I was reminded, hey, the kids are in here today, um, don't go long, um, I was seven years old when I heard God first really speak to me, and it made such an impression on my heart that I still remember it today. I was seven, and I was in a congregation. My dad was a pastor, so we grew up in church all the time, and there was a lady in our church who was sick. I think she was injured, actually, Um, and uh, we had a call to prayer, and this is kind of, you know, maybe a different tradition than you're used to, but we had an altar up front. And so they just invited the church to come pray. And so I'm a little seven-year-old, and I remember God prompting me in my heart. This is even before that I even thought that I was a believer. I remember God prompting me in my heart to go pray for this lady. And I was kneeling on my knees, and I was praying for this lady, and I felt God speak so clearly to me that I remember it 30 years later. um, God spoke to me and said, I'm going to heal her. Continue to pray. And just a few days later, like, you know, the, the word went out that this, this lady had been healed. And I knew that she was going to be healed because God had spoken to me. And I say that to all of us in here, um, especially the kids, is I don't want you to dismiss this time. Like God wants to speak to you. And he's got a plan for you. Um, there's many times throughout scripture where God used children um, in an incredible way. And certainly teenagers. As a matter of fact, every great awakening, every great revival has normally been started by teenagers who are committed to praying for God's presence to move. So I don't want us to dismiss just because it's kids are in here with us that, uh, that you just draw the whole time. Now feel free to draw and we, we gave that to you. The scene today is actually a pretty good one. I don't know, maybe you can draw in your envelope. The scene is Jesus and his disciples on a mountain and Jesus is about to ascend to heaven. So that's kind of a cool picture anyway, if you want to draw that. I remember uh, as a seventh grader, my parents took me to um, the Passion Play in Eureka Springs. Anyone ever been to that, right? Passion Play, right? That was, that was the, closest, the closest thing to like, you know, visual, like this really happened. And uh, I remember I was pretty bored during most of it um, until the end scene where Jesus... I couldn't see the cables, like, was lifted into the air. And I was like, how's he doing that? That's pretty amazing. <clears throat> and uh, so we're going to start in the book of Acts. Let me start in the, uh, the first verse of uh, the book of Acts, the first couple of verses here. It says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. You might underline or highlight that word, began. Until the day he was taken up after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. It starts off in the first book, which means it's connected to the other book uh, of, uh, of Luke. Luke wrote both the gospel bearing his own name and this book of Acts. And it's written to this, so Luke and Acts is like this two volume set by the same author, Theophilus who is some sort of skeptic, 
Many think that Theophilus was the one that financed this journey of Luke. But he's writing these books for Theophilus as to put an orderly account of what really happened with Jesus. It starts the book of Luke in the same way by um, focusing on the reason that he's writing. So I want to give you a little history behind the person Luke before we actually dive in the book of Acts. And we will spend most of this year in the book of Acts. I think we're at about 30 sermons, give or take a few. So Luke was a physician. In Colossians 4 it tells us that he was Dr. Luke. He was not an eyewitness to the life and death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. He was more like an investigative reporter. He was a historian who would go and talk to the people that knew Jesus and the town that Jesus grew up in. And he would talk to the man that was healed of his blindness in John 9. And he would ask him about that. And he recorded all of those things down. He was very close friends with Paul. He's mentioned only three times in the New Testament. As we read together the book of Acts, you're going to see certain passages where Paul says, we went there and we did this and we did that. And you're wondering, who is Paul with? Most of the time, it was Luke. He's a traveling companion of Paul. They work together. They're friends. Many theologians think that he was actually Paul's personal physician. Again and again, as Paul's getting beaten and shipwrecked and homeless and in prison, the doctor would be a a good uh, help on that team. So these two guys worked together. They were friends and partners in ministry. So as he's traveling with Paul, he sees what's happening, and he's recording what's happening. He's the, again, investigative reporter doing the work to look back at what Jesus did, and also an eyewitness recording what's happening in this book, the book of Luke, through the Holy Spirit. Now Luke and Acts, again, are two books of the New Testament, but together they constitute the majority of the New Testament. Just by sheer length, Luke writes the majority of chapters of words contained in the New Testament. The largest number of books in the New Testament, you know probably, is written by the Apostle Paul, who again is a friend of Luke. So Luke is involved in, to some degree, the vast majority of almost the entire New Testament. He stayed faithful to Jesus. There is a record of him outside of the Bible in church history, where it says it's written that it's written about a hundred years after he lived. This historian recorded this of Luke. Indeed, Luke was a Antiochian Syrian, a doctor by profession, a disciple of the apostles. Later, however, he followed Paul until his martyrdom. So Luke died for Jesus, serving the Lord blamelessly. It says a faithful and godly man. He never had a wife, never had fathered children. He died at the age of 84, the historian tells us. I love this, full of the Holy Spirit. Man, would we all have that last line on our gravestone. That we died full of the Holy Spirit. It says in verse 3 that he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. I can't tell you how many times I've missed that little word began that we just read in verse 1. I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Began means that it's ongoing even now. That Jesus started something. It doesn't say it really in kind of a past tense like he he did this, but he began this. And today we're going to talk about, and through the book of Acts, we're going to talk about the birth of the New Testament church I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. It implies continuation, not all that Jesus did necessarily, but the movement that Jesus started. Now when you think about church, all of us probably think about different things. If I say, hey, describe to me the church, some of you might describe what the church looks like. 
Most of you would not describe a gymnasium. Maybe it's a little country church, right, on the hillside that you've seen or the typical church that you grew up in. Or maybe you would speak about the very people of God. But really the church was the movement of Jesus. That Jesus started this movement that was known as the way by outsiders in that time. It's not that in the gospel of Luke, Jesus worked, and now in Acts, the church works, but Jesus worked in his fleshly body in the book of Luke, and now through his body, the church, he works in the book of Acts. This is where this phrase comes that we don't go to church, but we are to be the church. Like we are the church. He has invited the church not to do it for him, but to join Jesus as he does it through us. And this is such a fundamental difference. So Luke starts by recapping this deep-seated conviction that they all believed that Jesus was the incarnation, God in the flesh, who lived a blameless life without sin, died for the sins of mankind on the cross. And again, this would be referred to as the way at first, and later on, several chapters into Acts, it would be recorded Christians. This was a movement more than a gathering of people. More on that in just a minute. It says in verse 4, and while he stayed with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he had said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Verse 6, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Isn't it funny that the disciples still wanted Jesus to overthrow Rome? We've talked about this before. That Fast forward, I mean, rewind a little bit to Palm Sunday. And Jesus is with his disciples and he's riding into town on the colt or on the donkey. And they're waving palm branches that signify that he is coming in for victory. And just a few, I mean, hours after that, the crowd turns on him and starts chanting, crucify him. And then we see the whole uh, Passion Week flash before our eyes. And his disciples are so infuriated with him because they thought Jesus messed up. They thought on Palm Sunday that he was coming to overthrow Rome and to make their life more comfortable. He was going to, you know, kick Caesar off the throne and he was rightfully going to take it. And he was going to bring in his kingdom at that point, but... It didn't end up that way and the disciples are discouraged and depressed and walking those on the road to Emmaus and then Jesus appears with them and they're excited again and then Jesus starts appearing. It says for 40 days he's appearing to to these disciples and then once again they are encouraged and they think, okay, he had to go die first. Now he's going to come and overthrow Rome and now we're going to get this Jewish utopia just like we have wanted it and we're going to get more comfort where there was pain and we're going to get freedom where there was slavery and they're excited that he's coming. And so that prompted this question for them to ask, Jesus, now is it time? Are you finally going to go and kick Caesar's tail, right? Is this, is this about to go down? We are ready to fight with you. Is this what's happening? And then Jesus responds to them, no. <laughs> he says, you know what? Don't even worry about when. It is not for you to know, it says in verse 7, the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Jesus is not as concerned with us knowing when his second coming is as he is us going. Not his return necessarily, but us being on mission for him. 
And he says that this is going to happen. He says how it's going to happen. Not when it's going to happen, but he told him how it's going to happen through the power of the Holy Spirit and the witness of those that call him Savior. And this is such a huge fundamental shift that I don't want us to miss it. Let's go to verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the very ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white clothes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go. This fundamental shift in Acts 1.8, he tells them to wait for the Holy Spirit. Now we know some of the apostles were type A, and I'm sure they were like, wait, what do you mean? People are dying. They're going into a Christless eternity. We've got to get organized. We've got to write books. We've got to start leadership conferences. We've got all these things to do. And Jesus is saying, listen, this is not about something you can do for me, but this is something that I will do through you. So I want you to go and wait for the power of the Holy Spirit. In every chapter of Acts, you'll get this sense that the church is simply following the Spirit. He's the real mover. He's the one that's working in the people, moving these believers in this direction and that direction. They simply yielded themselves to to him. They yielded themselves to the power and movement of the Spirit. And that'd be a great question for us. Are we yielded to the promptings of the Holy Spirit? Are we yielded to the promptings of the Holy Spirit? Have we, as I talked about last week, laid our yes on the table and just let God put it on the map somewhere? And that's not just referring to some kind of mission overseas, like God puts it on the map by determining who your neighbors are and the people who you work with. And by giving you a passion to take the kingdom of God and the gospel of Jesus into every nook and cranny all over the world. And he wants to do this through you. So Jesus starts a movement. A movement built around a conviction that Jesus had died and he was the only savior for sinners. That he had risen from the dead proving that he was who he said he was. And he was rightful Lord of the earth and all people everywhere now commanded to repent and invited to come to him. In the Greek New Testament, the word translated church is this word ekklesia. Maybe you've heard of it. It comes from ek, which means out of, and kaleo, which means to be called out. So think of this ekklesia as an assembly of people called out around a specific idea. That's the church. There's no steeples. There's no buildings even at this point. There's just a few followers and Jesus would tell Peter that upon you I'm going to build this church. I'm going to start this movement and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The danger of the church in every age is to cease being a movement and instead become a ministry that provides service to people. Or even worse, a place that people simply attend. Movements move. And if you aren't part of the move, if you're going to be part of the movement, then you're going to be one of the ones that are moving. 
You're going to be this radically called in and you get your identity as a son or daughter of the very king of the universe that you're called in and you're radically sent out. It's a spiritual cyclone called in and sent out. Now, we've been in this city for seven years, and I served in this city even before we started the church, and so I know a lot of the pastors in the area. And I love to start up conversation with people when I'm at Starbucks or some other coffee shop, and somehow it gets on, what do I do for a living? And I'm a pastor, and they get real excited, some people. Now, some people look at me crazy and run away, but some people get excited, and they said, oh, well, man, that's great. I go to this and this church. And they would happen to speak of a church where I really know the pastor, and I was like, oh, Really? You know, who's the pastor there? And a lot of them don't know, which is okay. Some people are bad with names. I get it. And I normally always follow up with this second question. Well, man, that is great. Can you tell me something? What's the most recent thing that God has told you? And then all of a sudden they got to go. Because people think to belong to the movement is to actually go and attend a church service. And they are so radically wrong. Because that is not what the church is. It's this ecclesia of called out people centered around this idea. And that idea is that we've been radically saved and radically sent. And I think that's a good question for us this morning. Are we as a church just doing ministry? Are we just running an institution? Or are we part of a movement? Maybe for you personally, is the church a place that you attend? Is it religious goods and services that you consume or is it a movement that you are personally part of? And these are the two core principles that started this movement. A radical, deep-seated belief in the message and a continual yielding of themselves to the Spirit who moved them out on God's mission. Let's look at verse 8 again. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you And you might underline this, that you will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, you will be my witnesses. And I don't know if you write in your Bible or you're using some kind of app, you might just write your name over that you. Because that is in essence what he is saying even to us. This commission applies to us. That you receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, Luke. And Luke... You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and to the very ends of the earth. I want you to put your name there. Because this call is not just for me and it's not just for professional clergy. This is the call of Jesus for every follower of Jesus. That we would be part of the movement and we would be on his mission. And real quickly I'd like to go through some of those things. First our mission. That we are a sent people. We've said this so much, I feel like it glosses over us at times, but this is in essence what the point is in the last sermon that Jesus gives to his disciples, you will be my witnesses. Witness was a term used in court that you testified about something that you had seen. A witness's job is not really to do anything, but to tell people of what's already been done. We see this sentence throughout all scripture in the passage we looked at last week with Abraham who was to be a blessing to all people or how Israel was to be a light in the midst of pagan nations or how Jesus described the kingdom like a seed being planted that would change the landscape of society that his kingdom would be light in a dark room or a city on a hill or salt against a flavorless society again and again and again. We see this kingdom as something coming and being sent through his disciples. 
2 Corinthians 5 talks about this very ministry of being sent. You've heard this before in verse 18. All of this from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Skip down to verse 20. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. Again, you might put your name there instead of us. God making his appeal through you. Now, a lot of us don't like this responsibility. Again, like we talked about last week, we like, we like the promises of God, but not the process in which he is going to extend his kingdom to the very ends of the earth. He does it through his family. And we are part of his family. You know, the most likely way that God is going to reach your coworkers is through you. And you know the most likely way that God is going to reach your neighbors is through you. And you know the most likely way that God is going to reach your kids, it's, it's through you. It's being part of this movement, these, this mission that is so clear. There is no such thing in the New Testament as a Christian who's on the sidelines. The invitation is to follow Jesus and to have your life transformed by him, your heart conformed to his, so that you care so much about the things that he cared so deeply about. That's our mission. That's pretty clear. And next, our message. Luke begins the book by pointing back to his gospel as the summary of the message of Jesus and then points to the fact that Jesus was walking around and talking with so many months after his resurrection. They had this great conviction, these early disciples. They believed that Jesus had risen from the dead and they believed not because they had heard it, but because they had seen it with their own eyes. This proved to them beyond any doubt that Jesus was who he said he was. The apostles understood that if this were true, then this was the greatest act of grace ever imagined. God, the creator of the universe, was dying for his rebellious children. And it was the most important message ever given because it was our only hope for salvation. And if this were true, then there weren't multiple ways to God. If if there were any other ways to salvation, wouldn't God have let his son off the hook rather than going to the cross when Jesus said in the garden, if there's any other way, let it pass from me. If there was any other way, wouldn't God have said, Jesus, there are other ways. Just be a good person and be sincere and God will accept these people in their life. But he didn't say that because that's not the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the apostles believed them with such strong conviction. There's a difference between a preference, and a persuasion. These disciples believed the message of Jesus that there were no other way to heaven but through him. Peter would summarize the apostles' message in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. Neither is there salvation in any other, he said, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And they would take that message all over the world They had also seen in the death of Jesus a God so beautiful and glorious that he was worth giving their whole lives for. 
a God whose glory deserved to be spread among all the peoples of the earth. They had seen this command. They had seen this God command hurricanes and converse with angels and control demons and walk on water and heal lepers and raise the dead. Yet in the hour that he most needed access to those powers, Jesus turned his back on them so that he would give his life as a sacrifice for their sin. They believed this and were persuaded by this to such a degree that every one of those 12 disciples Remaining disciples, the 11 minus 1, John, died a martyr's death. And my question for us, do we really believe this, church? Are we in here playing, playing church? Going to big church, maybe? Are we just sitting, consuming religious goods and services? Or at the very depth of our being, do we really believe that there's no salvation outside of the person of Jesus? Do we believe that? Are we convicted to that point that we will risk anything fame or fortune or comfort that we would risk everything so that others may know this good news of the gospel do we really believe this these disciples really believed it and finally their motivation was the power behind it somehow they all start with m's don't blame me for that i don't know I grew up in a Baptist church. I hear God speak in alliteration. Our motivation. People whose lives have been radically changed by Jesus don't need some kind of outside motivation for ministry. They don't need a pastor to get up and jump up and down and talk about the needs all over the world. They have an inward motivation. Because the Holy Spirit is inside of them, conforming them to the image of Jesus, conforming their heart to the heart of God. Never had a more important assignment been given to a less qualified group of people. Think about that. They had all just deserted Jesus just a few weeks before. They'd given up hope. They'd returned to their homes only for Jesus to come back. And they're still asking him on his very last day on the earth, Jesus, when are you going to get rid of Caesar, man? Let's, let's, let's do this and do it right. Let's bring in your kingdom. Verse 10 is such an interesting picture to me. Jesus floats up into the cloud. It says in verse 10, And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, I wonder how long they gazed before the two men showed up and kind of gave him a little kick in the rear, saying, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into heaven? As if he's not coming right back right now. I don't know if they thought Jesus was just like doing a little trick for him, you know, like, hey, watch this, up and down. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The disciples are there dumbfounded. It doesn't tell us again for how long the angels go to get them going. Yes, this assignment that had been given to them to take this gospel message, this good news of Jesus, to the very ends of the earth. This gospel that had been sown and planted and radically changed the life of just a few in this small Jewish sect of the smallest nation in the world at that point was going to grow and reach the very ends of society. But let's not miss that God promised that he was going to do it through them. This was not Peter just using his natural gifts and leadership abilities. This was not 
Matthew using strategic thinking. No, no, this was going to be Jesus, the Savior of the world that was going to leave so that he could empower them to do this. Jesus had explained to them that they should rejoice when he left because then he would send the Holy Spirit. Isn't that what he said? It's better for me to go. When Jesus first appeared to Mary Magdalene in the garden after he had resurrected, she could see that he was going away. And so she grabbed hold of him and he said, don't cling to me. If I don't go away, I can't come back to live in you. As the Holy Spirit, in other words, let go of my hand so that I can fuse with your soul. Augustine, commenting on this passage, said this. I think I have this quote on the screen. You ascended before our eyes and we turned back grieving only to find you in our hearts. The main thing the Spirit of God did for these believers beyond giving them spiritual gifts, which is another sermon that we need to probably preach, that all of us have been given an actual spiritual gift that we're to use to grow the kingdom of God and to bless and serve the body. Beyond the gifts, he empowered each of them to testify, to declare the very gospel. The Holy Spirit does a lot of things in Luke and Acts, but the main thing he does is fill people with the courage and boldness to communicate the gospel. In fact, the first time you see someone filled with the Spirit, they proclaim the word of God to others. Again and again in Luke chapter 1 verse 15, John the Baptist, being filled with wisdom, proclaims the coming of the Lord. Luke 1.41, Elizabeth, being filled with the Spirit, proclaimed blessing over Mary. Luke 1, verse 67, Zechariah, again, filled with the Spirit, prophesied the coming glory of Jesus. Acts 2.4, the Holy Spirit fills the apostles at Pentecost, and they begin to declare, declare God's praises in multiple language. Thousands of people are added to the church that day. In Acts 4.8, Peter is filled with the Spirit, and he preaches to the rulers that Jesus is the only hope of salvation. In Acts 4.31, the disciples are again filled with the Spirit, and they speak the word of God boldly in the face of severe persecution. In Acts 9.20, Paul is filled with the Spirit, and he immediately begins to preach in the synagogues. And we don't have time to go through the whole book, but again and again it would say, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he began to proclaim the gospel. Many times in very difficult and dangerous circumstances. How could this be? Even those in the the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin noticed that these were just common untrained men. They even said, who are these people? Common and untrained that they would speak with such boldness and such wisdom. Can I tell you that God has given us the same mission and the same message and the same motivating Holy Spirit inside of every one of us? That isn't just a historical narrative that we read. That is very true and present in your very life today. Can you imagine a church who had a clarity about the message of Jesus, a conviction about it? an understanding of the mission God has sent us on and a filling of the Holy Spirit that we would be able to declare the gospel all over the world. God has called and equipped you in this very same way. He's given each of us a very common but unique ministry. I was talking to my friend about this just a couple days ago. I feel like for a lot of us, when it comes to church and ministry, that we feel like the pastor, and maybe even some pastors feel like this, and 
We feel like the pastor is an archetype of Moses. You remember in the Old Testament that Moses is going to go up the mountain and he's going to hang out with God and he's going to come back with the tablets. Remember that? And we, his face is even glowing, right? And we feel like maybe the pastor is, is like Moses and he's going to go up the mountain all week and study and he's going to hear from God. And everyone else, we're just the commoners. We're just melting our gold in the shape of calves and whatever else we're doing. We're just, we're just the peasants. We're peasants waiting on the preacher to come down the mountain with his face aglow and give us the very words of God. But you won't see that anywhere in the book of Acts. If anything, it's not that Moses is the one that goes up the mountain and hears from God. It's that now there's been a path for every one of us to go up the mountain. That's what the priesthood of believers really is, that we don't you don't need to depend on me, and I don't need to depend on anyone else. If, if pastors do anything, they're just here to kind of encourage you to go up the mountain. Hey, why don't you go up the mountain and hear what God has to say to you? Why don't you go up the mountain? He's got, he's got this wealth of things. I mean, things, as Ephesians says, that, that would just blow your mind if you even knew them. They're, they're greater than you can even think or imagine what he wants to do through your seed of the gospel. Through your life amongst your neighbors and your workplaces. He wants to do through you greater things than even Jesus himself did. And most of us get blinded by this, I don't know if it's this, uh, this commoner thought that we've got to depend on someone else to tell us what we're, we need to be about. And surely doctrine is greatly important and, and pastors are there to help equip you for work of ministry. Absolutely Yes. But there's nowhere in the book of Acts that says that all you, have, all you get is to chew on food that I've regurgitated. That is just not how it works. So my plea with all of us is to go up the mountain. Go hear what God has to say to you. Open the word of God. It says of itself that it's living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. That God wants to speak to you. He wants to give you a unique mission. So the pastor doesn't have to get up here and try to, try to motivate you to go and be a part of this. This is an inward motivation. And some of you have that. Some of you have got this, you've been up the mountain and you heard God talk about adoption or orphan care. Or foreign missions or whatever it is. Or starting a Bible study at your work. You went up the mountain and God spoke. And you were fearful and you didn't know all that it was going to entail. But you just took a step of faith and God met you there. And you took another step of faith and God met you there. And the enemy was all around. He was threatening and scaring. And he was trying to shut down any movement of God. And you just took another step of faith up the mountain. And God began to reveal his will to you. Pretty clearly. And you begin to walk in obedience. And for all of you that have done that, don't dismiss what God has already done and is doing. Satan surely waits for us to put our guard down to discourage and to threaten, to scare us from following through with what God has placed upon our heart. Some of you aren't part of the family of God yet, and I feel like you're close to taking a step across this line of faith, and even now you're thinking about all the reasons why you shouldn't do this. And I'm pleading with you as your pastor to go up the mountain and listen for the voice of God and the promptings of the Holy Spirit and then walk in obedience. Now some of these don't take any kind of special revelation. Acts 1.8 tells us that all of us are going to be witnesses. All of us. We don't have to go up the mountain to hear that. 
We're all going to be witnesses. It's pretty clear revelation through the word of God of the things that we should be doing, of loving one another and caring for one another and giving our finances so that we could help fund this kingdom initiative. All these things, these are pretty common, but there are some things. I met a guy last week who had a heart for wrestlers. He was a wrestler in college. He wanted to start this ministry to wrestlers. Now that's something you have to hear up the mountain. That's nothing in scripture. He started this little Bible study amongst these college wrestlers that turned from two or three to 10 to 15 to 100 to this movement of Bible studies for wrestlers on college campuses and in the high schools. And he saw this thing blow up to 10,000 people involved in this. Now that's something you hear up the mountain. And God's doing that even now. He wants to use you specifically in some dark corners of the world, some dark corners of our city that this church will never get into, that I would never get into. God's called you as his missionary there. He's placed you there. And he's ready for you to take steps of obedience to what he's revealed to you. And that's my prayer for us as a church. That we would understand this call of this missionary call in us, but also that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is alive and at well in us. That we're not twiddling our thumbs just, just, just waiting, but we're busy doing, hearing from God and obeying what he's called us to do. Now maybe you just need to get the wheels turning this morning and I tell you two great steps to get the wheels turning and start serving those that are in need and start serving the local body. Those are great steps. You know, it's easier to steer a car once the wheels are moving. So maybe that's a step that you would take today. You would sign up to serve on one of our teams or um, we serve meals on Sunday nights down at uh, the Love Well. We serve those in extreme poverty. Maybe that'd be a step that you would take to get those wheels turning and maybe your prayer is, God, I want to lay my yes on the table and I want you to put it on the map. Maybe that's your step of obedience. Maybe you're already walking in obedience to what, and you're just scared a little bit. You don't, you're kind of, you're not worried, you're just a little worried about where the finances are going to come from. And my encouragement is to take a step. I'm going to pray for us. Let me confess something, that if you're waiting on me to go up the mountain to tell you what God has for you, that he's very rarely in my life spoken to me on others' behalf. He's done it a few times, and it's been so crazy that you don't even want to hear what he said, I promise you. Or at least those people didn't want to hear it. But God wants to speak to you. What this scripture says is, if you seek him, then you'll find him. We've got all the access to who he is and what he speaks to us in his word and the Holy Spirit guiding us. And this is the great reminder of communion, right? This shared identity as his family, he's our father, and this shared mission being called in and radically sent out. I'm going to pray for us and we're going to take communion. I just want you to spend some time praying where you're at. Just asking God to speak to you about what your next step of obedience is. Father, if we're honest, most of us just don't make time for this. We live such busy and hurried lives that even if you were to speak to us, you got about a five-minute window. And that's just not how you work. 
that you want us to come to you desiring you, not necessarily your will, but desiring to be with you. To gain this shared identity and then from there, God, that you move in incredible ways. And so, Father, I pray for us that we would gain this thirst for communion with you, this, this hunger for righteousness, that we would reorient all the things in our life, the lesser things in our life, around this one quest of sitting with you and knowing you and loving you. And Lord, during communion today, will you remind us this is not us doing the work. This is just you doing it through us. Just as you've said to think about your death as we do this, but then to leave here proclaiming your death until you come again. Father, a lot of us have quenched and grieved your Holy Spirit. You've called us to take a step and we've disobeyed. We thought our way was better. We didn't want to risk losing anything of comfort. And we said no, and that, that voice has gotten weaker and weaker. Some, some of us, it's really hard to hear, even this morning. We don't, we don't know exactly what you're saying. So, Father, would you speak to us again? Holy Spirit, would you illuminate the beauty of Jesus and his good news again to us? Will we follow it with all that we have? As we take communion, Lord, continue to speak to us. Remind us of who we are in you. Thank you for the beautiful gospel. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. When you're ready, our communion servers are here. I'll be in the back if you'd like to pray with someone. I encourage you to take some time, though, to listen for the voice of God, and then come when you're ready. Thank you for the cross that you have carried. 
Thank you for your blood that was shed You took the weight of sin upon your shoulder And sacrificed your life so I could live Thank you for the cross that you have carried Thank you for your blood that was shed You took the weight of sin upon your shoulders And sacrificed your life so I could live Now nothing is holding me back from you redeemer of my soul now nothing can hold me back from you your love will never let me go thank you for your death and resurrection thank you for the power of your blood I am overwhelmed by your affection the kindness and the greatness of your love the kindness and the greatness of your love Is holding me back from you, Redeemer of my soul. Now nothing can hold me back from you. Your love will never let me go. Oh, Jesus. You make all things new Oh Jesus You make all things new yeah. Oh Jesus You make all
Now I get to love you in return Now I get to love you in return
myself here on my knees again Caught up in grace like an avalanche Nothing compares to this love, love, love I'm going to usher us down front for our offering. Let me pray for us. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, uh, uh, thank you for inviting us into your restoration mission, Lord. Thank you for empowering us for this mission, Father. Father, forgive us for where we um, do not step in and take that step of faith, Father, to move forward, Lord. Forgive us for being apathetic, for being uh, selfish, Lord. But Lord, thank you for your kindness at least to repentance. Thank you for the good news of the gospel, Lord. You have given us everything, Lord. Lord, we ask for you to bless this offering right to take, Father, that you will uh, bless our hearts as we give it, that you will make us uh, givers more like yourself, Lord that you'll bless the actual money we give to, uh, to reach out to the lost, the last, and the least among us in our community, our city, our state, our country, and our world, Father. That we'll use this to uh, proclaim your name and further your kingdom. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Place your envelopes and cards in the baskets. I want to invite Jamie up front, down front. She's going to update us um, on our people group in uh, Southeast Asia and the missionaries out there and how we can kind of love and support on them moving forward. Good morning. Okay, so um, I've been thinking and praying a lot about how uh, we can get everybody a little bit um, more involved and like Luke said, get those wheels turning on the prolong. And so I was thinking about what is it in my life that gets me to remember things or do things that aren't natural or that I tend to forget, and that is my kids, right? So they'll have the pep rally at school, and then they come home, and they're trying to convince me that it is worth me spending hours filling out a little piece of paper so they can mail it off to all of my family members and make money off of a magazine or whatever it is, right? I'm sure that your kids' parents or your kids' teachers do the same thing. Or when the grandparents come in and the grandparents are like, go ask your mom if you can do this really ridiculous thing, right? Um, So I'm going to attack your kids this morning and see if they can help hold you more accountable for the prolong, right? So kids, this is my challenge to y'all. Y'all listening? Um, So in the back, on the back table, there's all kinds of little postcards. And 